This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I've been working on a very special project with climate farmers for the last few months, and I'm proud to say that we're finally ready to announce our new pioneer program for farmers in Europe. For this round, we've partnered with a longtime hero of mine, Darren Doherty, and his Regrarians platform to bring the most complete regenerative farm training program together with our unique Carbon Plus credits for transition finance assistance. The Regrarians online program is built around their expanded scale of permanence through which you'll learn essential elements of holistic management, key line design, farm infrastructure development, soil health, business and finances, and so much more. All of this will be accompanied by access to some of the biggest names in regenerative agriculture around the world through our skill exchange calls, expert panel discussions, and a chance to get dedicated attention from some of the best ag consultants in your region, as well as guidance through the application process to our Carbon Plus credits. Along the way, I'll be leading weekly coaching calls for the entire group, and you'll be able to interact and ask questions to your peers and the whole Regrarians network with access to their workplace community. All of this amounts to the most thorough and robust program to guide you through your journey to profitable regenerative farming. Whether this is your first introduction into agriculture, or you're a seasoned veteran who's been growing for decades, whether you're only planting a small farm, or you're managing thousands of hectares, you'll find everything that you need to make the journey as smoothly and confidently as possible. Now, applications will only be reviewed until the 5th of November, and there is a limit to how many people we can accept into the program, so don't hesitate. Even if you're not farming right now, I'll bet you know someone who would benefit immensely for this kind of guidance and training, so make sure to recommend it to them as well. For more information on how to apply to become a pioneer farmer, you can follow the link in the show notes or go directly to climatefarmers.org. I can't wait to see you there. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we'll be picking up where we left off last week in our three-part series with Graham Sait. For a long time, I've been working to connect the pieces between ecological health, regenerative methods of farming, and the health of the human body. Though many of you will find the connection between those three elements very intuitive, I've worked to find experts and practitioners who've illuminated some essential pieces of that puzzle over time. Up until now, most of the discussions on this show have focused on just one of those elements at a time. But today we'll continue with the second of the three-part series with Graham Sait, who has made it his life's work to marry these disciplines and train farmers, healthcare professionals, and ecologists around the world in the importance of caring for our bodies and our ecologies as a single organism that requires all of the pieces to be in place for optimal function. If you didn't have the chance to hear the first part, I highly recommend it to give context to this episode, and I've linked it in the show notes. So for a quick recap, Graham Sait is the internationally acclaimed author and educator who co-founded Nutritech Solutions and Nutrition Matters, as well as hosting the Nutrition Farming Podcast. He's written hundreds of published articles and the popular book Nutrition Rules. Graham has formulated many of the soil health and human health products for which NTS are renowned, and he has developed all of the nutrition programs that are the keystone for their proactive management approach. Graham also owns Nutrition Farm, which comprises of two distinctly different properties dedicated to the production of nutrient-dense, chemical-free food with forgotten flavors and enhanced medicinal qualities. Now, because our conversation turned into a marathon of learning, I decided to release it in three parts, which will make it easier to process and to find parts which to go back to in order to review some of the information later. 
So here in this second session, Graham and I will explore valuable infield monitoring tools, the connection between the health of the soil and the health of the human body, and how tracing back common deficiencies in our own bodies has the potential to be remedied by recovering the nutrients that have been lost in our plants, which are grown in depleted or microbially inactive soils. Now, Graham has an incredible wealth of knowledge, and you'll quickly see why I chose to break this interview into parts, because every snippet contains enough information for a show by itself. Now, with that said, I'll hand things over now to Graham. As we're making these parallels between health in the soil and health in our own bodies, what are some of the tests that you go to to determine the holistic health of a human that can give you the types of uh, insights into what is going on, the, the synthesis of various nutrients and the uptake of the essential things that keep us functioning uh, properly? Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll move into that in a moment, but I'll just quickly talk about a couple one of the meters that I consider to be most important in terms of infield monitoring tools is a very simple thing called a potassium meter. Now I call potassium the money mineral because it is, it determines the size of things and that's what you get paid for. It also determines the sweetness in many instances, but because it carries sugars into the developing fruit or seed or whatever. Uh, and so but the problem with potassium is that it's the most mobile of all minerals, second most abundant mineral behind nitrogen, but most mobile, more mobile even than nitrogen, which is pretty mobile. Uh, and so when you start running out of potassium, and if you're monitoring your crop using a conventional leaf test, you're measuring the first fully developed leaf at the top of the plant. Um, but the reality is because of its mobility, the moment you start running out of potassium, the plant draws its reserves from the lower leaves and you're not measuring those leaves. And by the time the entire plant's drained and you finally measure, oh, I'm short of potassium, you've been short of potassium for weeks and you'll never catch up. You're going to lose yield. And so what a potassium meter does, squeeze a few drops of the leaf into this, only three drops is required. So it's got a little sink and it can collect those three drops. And you measure potassium levels in parts per million at the top and then at the first fully developed leaf. And then you go to a lower leaf, not one that's senescing, not one that's dying off, but a healthy lower leaf. And they've got to be the same. Basically, they need to be exactly the same region or close to the same. And as soon as the lower leaf becomes 10% lower than the top leaf, and this whole test takes one minute, uh, literally to do the twos a minute. Uh, but as soon as that bottom, that's your monitoring tool. And you wouldn't believe if you're monitoring just what happens after flowering. You can be ticking along at 2,500 parts per million of potassium on a meter. The crop flowers five days later you're at 900 parts per million. There's so much potassium required and no one realizes that. And very commonly, particularly in cereal uh, cropping and so forth, you actually run it. And then if it gets dry, uh, potassium is only taken from soil solution. It's not fixed into the leaf like nitrogen can be through nitrogen fixes living on the leaf. You know, for, for an abundant one, you need a lot of it. You only get it from soil solution. And if there's no soil solution because of dry conditions and you don't have irrigation, then the first thing that happens is you get a burnt edge on the lower leaves because that's the side of potassium rushing from the bottom to the top and the burnt leaf on the outer edge is this classic something you see that on crops in Australia all the time, dryland crops. Um, and, and then you foliar spray potassium to compensate for that. But the meter allows you and gives you fingertip control, basically, of the money mineral. And it can be a game changer in terms of your profitability. So, and there's also things like nitrogen meters, which you, know, you can make sure the idea with nitrogen is that, you know, it's, it's been used and abused more than any other mineral because it does give such a response and we tend to overdo it. And if we overdo nitrogen, which is hugely common in intensive horticulture, 
uh, this, what, what the price we pay for that, the first thing that it impacts is that it shuts down potassium. So now you need more potassium, which is even more expensive, much more expensive than nitrogen. But then it also shuts down calcium and then it shuts down boron. Now, if you look at the wonderful book called Plant Nutrition and Disease, a summary of research, mineral, sorry, mineral nutrition and disease, that's what it looks like. I always have it sitting on my desk. Um, and you look at the principal link between minerals uh, and disease. Uh, nitrogen is number one, mismanagement, too much, too little, the wrong form at the wrong time is number one source of multiple diseases. Number two is potassium, particularly low potassium. Number three is calcium and number five is boron. So by mismanaging one mineral, you just shot yourself on the foot three other times and started on your knees. So it's, it's you know, that's what I mean. It's just understanding the dynamics of these things. Is critical. And a nitrogen meter allows you to say, what's my sweet spot? Because every plant, every crop in different soil conditions, different climatic conditions, different biological conditions will have its sweet spot for nitrogen. If you're using these meters in sync with each other, and even sometimes in parallel with leaf and conventional leaf analysis, you say, okay, this is where my crops are, uh, the crops are healthiest, this is where my bricks level is best, this is where my sap pH is right, and the nitrogen's at 1,400 parts per million. That's where I want to be. That's my sweet spot. During the vegetative period, it's going to be much lower from flowering onwards when potassium takes over as the driver from flowering onwards and nitrogen pulls right back. And you just learn where your sweet spot at those two times of the season is, and that changes things very quickly. So, so back to the human health side, I mean, obviously, there are uh, some very, very valuable tests now that, that can measure. And it's really, and people think, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got, I've got bifidus down below and I've got acidophilus up the top. And it's so much more complex than that. I mean, there's just a vast array of, of organisms. And there are these screens now, they're called bioscreens. You've got to get a poo test and within 24 hours for it to be valid. So you need to be in a city or have a courier that can get it there on that time. But they give you this analysis, like a soil food web analysis or, or DNA analysis, uh, and you'll see these overgrowths and, un, and undersupply of things, and then they can actually tweak that, usually with specific little antibiotics that will take out one overgrowth, and then you, they'll give you uh, specific things, like, like E. coli, you think, who would take E. coli? Well, quite often people come back, they don't have enough E. coli, and they've got to actually take some E. coli to balance up that system, and that can be a game changer in terms of degenerative, particularly inflammatory diseases. But the other kind of things, I mean, we've got an agriculture system that's just basically 60 to 65% of the chemicals we're using are endocrine disruptors. I've got endocrinologist friends who tell me that there's no one over 40 who's ever come in their door who's not messed up from a, from a hormone balance perspective. And that's huge and everything. Even if you look at something like... Um, and, you know, there's this thing. So that's, there's, there are a whole, a whole range of other players. If we look at the world's most... Um, widely prescribed drug, for example, and the world's most widely prescribed drug are the lipid-lowering drugs. There are nine of them account, counting for $23 billion in sales. So this is the world's most widely used drug. And the mode of action of those lipid-lowering drugs is a classic kind of um, simple, uh, silly idea of symptom treating with chemicals in a sense, because the mode of action is you shut down a building block called mavalinate. Now, mavalinate is also the building block for coenzyme Q10. So you're taking this stuff because you're theoretically trying to protect your heart because the cholesterol is being pointed, as, pointed out as this poison, which is not, it's a hugely important substance. But to shut it down, you shut down the building block, but the building block governs the building of co coenzyme Q10, which we decline in from 30 onwards. Coenzyme Q10, by, by some countries like Japan, insists it's the most important single nutrient for the heart. It's required for, in the mitochondria, 
Uh, and so cells that are going to go boom, boom for every second for uh, every hour of your life, they're going to have a lot of energy. And coenzyme Q10 is a huge player in that energizing of, the, of those cells. And brain cells that think 50,000 thoughts a day similarly need to be highly energized. And so coenzyme is accumulated in the heart and the brain accordingly. And you just shut it down with something theoretically to protect your heart. But more importantly, in that context, is that if we look at the role and we get back and say, okay, what, what does cholesterol do? We've called it a poison. What does it do? Cholesterol is at the very top of what's called the hormone cascade. It's the building block for our sex hormones. And what we see, and you'll see it, you talk to people who have been a year on lipid lowering and cholesterol lowering drugs, and there's many, many hundreds of thousands of them, they lose their libido. They've got no sex drive. Women and men. So women need half the testosterone that men need. Um, but they still need testosterone and it's one of the largest players in what I call the death of desire, the, the, the absolute loss of libido on women. It's a play where women have just lost. Uh, and that's huge you know, because libido is a direct measure of your overall health. You, you should be horny until the day you die is what the message is. <laughs> and interesting with the study that's just come out, looking at every parameter of your health, what they found was that the people who had sex most were the happiest, <laughs> strangely. And at the moment, we're not doing that because so many of us are impacted with you know, environmental impacts on, on our hormonal balance and testosterone is huge in that story. And as is progesterone, you know, it's a, there's this amazing balance between, between estrogen and progesterone and all of the negatives that estrogen does, particularly when you get to situations like menopause or andropause, the equivalent of men. Um, but all of the negatives that estrogen can do, which is, of course, feeding breast cancer and prostate cancer, are counted by this little, it's just like this perfect balance. Everything, there's 20 things, bad things that estrogen does and 20 things that are directly counted by progesterone. It's this wonderful example of the importance of balance, which is the most important thing in everything, basically. But anyway, it's just digressing. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> that, I it does often come down to that, that finding balance is essential and that that needs to be calculated within the context in which people are, right? Uh, the, yeah. the diet that's available to them, the conditions that they're under, the stress levels in their lives, so many factors, but within that finding a balance within what is available. Um, at this point, we got to start to figure out how we can start to take steps to reverse this process of loss of nutrition and biology in our soils, as well as in our gut microbiomes. What have you seen as some of the largest propellants in either getting people to realize that there's a problem and take action on it, or take practical steps to start to reverse these trends? Well, well, basically, just, just on that subject, I've found that, you know, because I cover this, when I do my four and five day courses, I cover 20% on human health. And I believe in a genuinely holistic system and a genuinely holistic system that, um, that, that really you kind of need to be healthy yourself or be aware of the parameters of your own health and your family's health and you're going to be better equipped to have a healthy soil sort of thing. They're all interrelated. And farmers are notoriously unhealthy, unfortunately. And of course, a huge player in that uh, is just stress because it's a fairly stressful occupation. And it's got more so in the brave new world of climate change farming. It's just become, it's become harder. It was already a very difficult occupation. And it's become more difficult. So I've made it my kind of mission in life to sort of teach strategies to try to make it more fun and to make it more profitable and to make it less stressful. But even if we go down to that stress and the root cause of stress, again, we've got to look at, first of all, the mineral side. And what, what, what you, one of the things, first things you address in that scenario, and then we'll, we'll start talking about human health, uh, soil health. But one of the first things you address is, 
the two things that are most impacted by stress because number one is magnesium it's the largest deficiency globally and magnesium is basically you've got a thing called a flight of fight response you walk and that came right back from when you walked out of your cave and there was a saber-toothed tiger and you had 32 things changed in your body including a massive pump of adrenaline and you fought the hardest you ever fought or ran the fastest you ever ran neither of which worked very well against the saber-toothed but you had a shot at it <laughs> but that we haven't lost that and I asked the question was when I was traveling in many many countries speaking to many many tens of thousands of people each year um you know, who amongst you can tell me you don't feel stressed on a regular basis that you'd rather not feel? Who can say they're stress-free and just be one hand in a hundred on average and you want to go and talk to that person and find out what their secret was? We've created this insanely stressful world. And of course, it's got no, no less stressful with uh, pandemics and lockdowns and loss of freedom and so forth that's come with this. And if you, you know, if you get to the last two weeks of your life, presuming that on, you're not on morphine or something that's not, knock the hell out of your reasoning capacity but usually there's a kind of clarity that comes through where you see your life and you can evaluate it and what you realize is that what you were the most important thing in your life was how much peace and happiness did you secure or achieve in that short lifetime well the opposite of peace and happiness is stress and anxiety and that's what we're all living in so we sort of messed up you know as a society we've kind of really fucked up badly uh, and we need to do something. Uh, we need to do a whole range of things, which I teach in the courses in terms of how we can change that. And the first of those is to address magnesium. And that's just an Epsom salts bath for 40 minutes with two cups of Epsom salts a couple of times a week until you build your numbers up because it's far more effective to absorb magnesium transdermally through the skin because the side effect of a prolonged or chronic magnesium deficiency, which many of us are, are, have been in that situation or are in that situation, is that your gut can no longer absorb magnesium through the gut lining anywhere near as efficiently. So you can't even fix it through your gut. You can do it with injections, you can do it intravenously, or you can do it transdermally, which is just an Epsom salts bath. And it's as good as any. Uh, and, 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 the, and you can only do it at night because you're so cruisy and so relaxed when you're up out of that bath. Then you understand that's what magnesium does. And the downside, if you don't do it, you get more stress, you start more magnesium, more stress, more magnesium until you have a stroke or a heart attack as you get the usual end outcome, uh, which are the you know, number one and three killer, number one and number four killers. So, um, so, so that's one thing, magnesium number two is B6, vitamin B6 is a stress vitamin. So you've got to supplement, almost everyone needs to be supplementing or having that bath and supplementing with B6. And then they've got to know the little tricks. If you're taking hundred milligrams, which is the dose you need to take of B6, then you've got to take a B complex with it because the B vitamins don't work by themselves very well. They've got to have that concept. You never find one B vitamin of food. It's always the whole suite because that's, they're all cofactors for the uptake of each of them. They've got to have the, the, the full chorus, the full choir there for them to work correctly. And so it's all those kind of simple tricks that I sort of talk about from that perspective. But when we talk about, uh, we go back to you know, how can we reclaim soil health and so forth. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, the capacity to monitor is a starting point. Where's my starting point? Where's my what, what is my microbial bi biomass count? Because if I can improve it, I'm going to do better. What works to improve it? And a simple little tool allows you to monitor what works best. If I'm buying a compost, is it a good compost? Because many of them aren't. There are many, many, many substandard composts that simply didn't, because people were anxious to turn it over and get some money, they didn't finish the composting process. That's so common in the commercial composting world. But now you've got a little tool you can measure. You know, you can measure the count and see if it's worth using or not. Uh, and so forth, even microbial inoculums, you can measure them. Are they good? Are they, are they junk? Because otherwise, you, you don't know. You haven't got a clue. So 
that's, that's a wonderful little tool. And so then it becomes how do we build uh, soil life and, uh, and, and improve that fungal to bacteria ratio. And one of the biggest kind of changes currently has been the recognition of what's called a cocktail cover crop and its impact on soil life. So this is just a, if we say, the definition of the word science in Webster's dictionary is adherence to natural laws and principles. We have a perfect blueprint we're supposed to learn from it and what we do, so we can do better than that. Well, we can't, we're on our knees staring down the abyss because of that arrogance that we were supposed to learn from this perfect blueprint. And if we say uh, in that context, um, okay, let's learn from nature. What's the central principle of nature? It's quite simple, it's biodiversity. So if biodiversity is the central principle of nature and science is working with nature rather than against it, then monoculture is a ridiculous joke that we went into some of this counter everything that we're supposed to be doing. You select, you feed every place. See, the thing to understand is this, is plants don't just exude 30% of their glucose. They lace that glucose exudate with nutrients that will sponsor the delivery of the minerals. Say I grow bananas on one of my farms here, the subtropical farm, amongst many things I grow bananas. But bananas have got a very, very high need for manganese, as have several other crops. And so they will, they will lace that exudate, that glucose exudate, with specific foods that will feed manganese-reducing organisms to deliver the mineral they want. So every, every plant's doing that. And, is, and, and basically, the more plants you've got above ground, the more diversity above ground, the more diversity you've got below ground. So while we can't say we're going to tear up the orchard because it's a monoculture, what we can say is let's put a multi-species cover crop in the interrow and back some of that to counter that mistake of a monoculture. Uh, and that's what people are doing with great success. And the findings are quite profound. There's a, there's a, uh, a Brazilian scientist, Dr. Adamir Caligari, who's made this discovery. And I personally think it's possibly even kind of Nobel Prize winning stuff. But he's discovered that if you can have five families in what's called a multi-species cover crop or a cocktail cover crop, and those five families are grasses, cereals, brassicas, legumes, and that's very common to have grasses, cereals, brassicas, legumes in one blend, but the one that's not common and needs to be in there is called, looks like it should be pronounced chenopods, but it's actually pronounced chenopods, C-H-E-N-O, pods. Small group of plants includes everything from the beet family, sugar beet, silver beet, beetroot, spinach, quinoa, and amaranth. That's all. It's a very small group. But you only need 1% of that seed in your blend, usually about 5 6% brassicas is the other one you pull back on, and then you can make your choice whether it's going to be legume-dominated or, or cereal-dominated or whatever for the rest of it. But we're not talking just five. We're saying the best thing is to have like 20, four of each or whatever. But you need the, you only need one chenopod in there, and you only need 1%. But without it, the magical thing. It's not magical, it's actually science behind it now. So there's a friend of mine, Ron Nichols, who used to head the soil health division of the US Ag Department. He said, okay, let's have a look at some of these guys who are doing this and saying, look, I'm getting the response of four cover crops and one four-month cover cropping cycle. My soil structure changed like a push penetrometer to the end when it would clonk at a hard pan for you know four months before. And I've never seen these changes with one single input. Uh, and so they said, okay, what's happening here? And what they discovered was uh, the USDA scientists, that only when the five families are present, four of them doesn't do it, the plant roots then, when the five families are there, they begin, begin this, this pumping out of phenolic compounds. All of the roots from all five species start pumping, they message each other and they start pumping out these phenolic compounds into the soil. Now, they are the most powerful phenolic compounds are, the, um, are actually the most powerful of antioxidants. And so it's why we drink green tea, it's why we have dark chocolate, it's why we eat blueberries, and they're all similar. Uh, groups of, of, of phenolic compounds. 
Uh, and it turns out that just like those phenomena, massively powerful antioxidants affect every one of our 10 trillion cells beneficially. It's the same thing happens to single and multi-cell creatures in the soil. They literally go into hyperdrive in the presence of that phenolic outpouring. And that's why cocktail cover crops are this huge phenomenon globally. And you can measure that change with a microbiometer and say, oh my God, there's nothing that changed my soil so quickly as this simple cocktail cover crop. So whether you do that between roads and an orchard, whether you do that with direct drilling into pastures and bring that diversity into a pasture scenario and graze it off with the animals. And of course, there's the whole concept of how you graze and what I call intelligent grazing and how you can use the animals as a principal fertility tool if you graze them correctly and so forth. That's a whole other story. But uh, so cocktail cover crops is huge. Uh, humic and fibric acid. So when you're composting, what you one of the two of the very important substances that have been produced during composting, and you can analyze the compost and the quality of the compost is partially determined by how much of these two natural acids you created. Uh, humus itself contains those two very, very active natural acids, but you can extract them from certain forms of brown coal in a very concentrated form, and they've become huge, huge players in regenerative agriculture. Humic acid is predominantly a fungal stimulant. It's filled with long-chain carbohydrates, and it's not just a fungal stimulant. It's the most powerful known fungal stimulant. So if you're trying to improve that fungi-to-bacteria ratio, humic acid has a huge play. Fertigated has a huge role to play. Uh, fulvic acid is predominantly a bacterial stimulant. It's 10 times smaller molecularly than, than humic acid, um, but it is a wonderful collating agent, and you can add fulvic acid to anything. You know, If you're conventional, not... not um, organic, you can take something like calcium. Say you're trying to play the calcium game and understanding the importance of calcium, almost every crop requires foliar calcium. And the cheap way to do that, you can't do it if you're organic, but if you're regenerative, you can. There's calcium nitrates, just a couple of kilos per hectare, and fulvic acid to create a calcium fulvate. And we've done all the work to show this one. There are few things, but much more expensive things that can, can deliver more effectively than that, but it's very, very good at a very, very low price. You do it yourself, it's five bucks a hectare, that kind of cost. So, and this is dollars, not euros. So it, it can be very, very, very cost effective, that strategy. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's uh, so you start looking at the tools that you can bring in to change that scenario. Now there's a wonderful new substance that uh, is a byproduct of the manufacture of biochar. So when you, when you make biochar, are you familiar with biochar? You know what that is? So when you make biochar, it's, in a, it's called pyrolysis. It's in an enclosed container and the condensation can be collected. You have a whole system where you collect it and they call that condensation wood vinegar and it contains all of the uh, compounds that have been found in the smoke. It smells incredibly powerfully of smoke. You put it on your hand, you smell like you've burnt off somewhere. You've got, wherever you go, it's been, oh, you've been burning off here. You can't actually get the smell off your hand. But the compounds in there are quite similar in some ways, lots of phenolic compounds and a whole range of other substances that are similar to what's in fulvic acid, but it has a bit of an insecticidal effect on them. They don't know the smart, I don't know what it is, but it's quite, it's a nematocide, really quite a good nematocide. It's fungicidal, but it's a wonderful tool to improve the microbial biomass at quite low rates, 10 liters per hectare. It can boost dramatically. You can take a soil at 300 from a microbiometer and take it to 1,000 from one application. I'm talking serious, like I haven't seen anything that does that that quickly. But not just that, it can take a 90 to 90-10 fungi-bacteria ratio up to 50-50 in one to two applications. So there's lots of new things that are coming into the into play with tremendous potential in terms of that bringing back that biology. So that's the biological side. 
the most important ratio, mineral ratio in the soil. And this, these are all the things, of course, to determine quality and to determine shelf life and nutrition, nutrient density and medicinal value of food and so forth. But the most important ratio before you do anything else is to fix the calcium to magnesium ratio. And that's because the most important single element is not in PK, it's not even calcium. The most important single element by far is oxygen. I mean, we last for two minutes if you hold your nose. Uh, it's the most important for all carbon-based life forms. Oxygen is the most important substance. So one of the chief roles that you're involved in when you're growing things is you're managing something called gas exchange. How freely does oxygen diffuse, which means it's a law that things come from high concentration or low concentration. They can't help themselves. Gases do that. They diffuse. So oxygen diffuses in. So if your soil is friable and open enough to allow it, and of course the roots use oxygen for everything, the organisms crowded around that root waiting for their daily feed use oxygen. They utilize that oxygen, the more the better, and then they breathe out. And of course they breathe out CO2. So now that gas diffuses from the soil and the plants waiting with its thousands of tiny stomates, sucks up the CO2, combines it with water and sunlight, and so begins photosynthesis. And that's how you grow stuff. So you're managing gas exchange. How freely does oxygen come? How freely does CO2 diffuse from that soil to drive photosynthesis and drive your whole product, productive potential? And that's gas exchange. And what determines gas exchange from a biological perspective is that fungi bacteria thing because bacteria created a tiny little aggregate with their sticky exudates and fungi wrapped that into a much larger crumb, a larger aggregate. And crumb structure is largely a biological thing. So that's a great way to get that soil breathing when you've got all these, all these spaces between the crumbs uh, breathing in and out for that matter. But from a from a mineral perspective and the physical change comes about through the calcium to magnesium ratio so calcium double positively charged cation so it's like a beach ball it's every every mineral has a different ionic radius it's a different size calcium is a great big mineral it has a positive charge on each side it grabs a little colloid of clay on either side and it pushes apart the clay and that's called flocculation that's calcium's one of calcium's huge physical roles in the soil and now your soil breathes better Magnesium is also double positively charged, but it's a golf ball compared to that beach ball. And so it pulls the clay, grabs clay on either side, pulls it in, and now you've got platform shoes in the wet. You've got a closed tight soil that doesn't breathe very well, that doesn't have the oxygen, and a whole range of problems happen, including sometimes the dominance of, uh, of anaerobes that are very, very negative. But they don't need oxygen, so they, they, they can thrive because they haven't got the oxygen lovers keeping, keeping them in check and you get disease and so forth associated with that poor breathing capacity of soil. So first thing you're going to do is get your soil breathing. And to do that, it's fungi to bacteria ratio and the CalMag ratio. So you, those are all the same kind of things that we... And then you've got to look at the roles of all the trace minerals and you've got to make sure that you are addressing uh, those trace minerals, understand their roles. You don't want... You know, your second role is that you're managing chlorophyll and you don't want pale colours and blotches and stripes on that leaf. You want chlorophyll density at its maximum. And of course, the refractometer helps you measure that. Uh, and so now you're looking at all these little trace minerals and little obscure things sometimes that we've completely ignored. Minerals like molybdenum, for example. So molybdenum is only required at 0.5 of a part per million in the soil, so tiny amounts, but 80% of the soils that we would look at in the 57 countries we work in are lacking in molybdenum. And that's huge because for one thing, the, the, the concept of nitrogen fixation is from, from microorganisms is hugely important because in, the, in terms of nitrogen, there's a nitrate in the ammonium form of nitrogen, 
Uh, and basically there's a balance between those in the plant and the leaf. And in the soil, it's a one-to-one -one ratio, ideally, although they fluctuate, fluctuate constantly because ammonia gets nitrified and so forth. But the idea is to have no more than 20 parts per million of either ammonium and nitrate nitrogen. But in the plant, it's actually three parts ammonium to one part nitrate. So, uh, it's, and to achieve that, you will never achieve. And that's a resilience ratio. You can, if you can get anywhere near that, you've got a much more resilient crop but you will never get anywhere near that unless you've got uh, the, the, the tools in place to fix nitrogen successfully from the atmosphere. Recognise that there are 74,000 tonnes of nitrogen gas hovering above every hectare, and you're supposed to be getting a significant percentage of your nitrogen in the ammonium form through the conversion of that gas to the ammonium form of nitrogen. Now, that involves an enzyme that both free-living nitrogen fixes and the organisms on the roots utilise called nitrogenase, and that's made from molybdenum. And if you are one of the 80% that don't have molybdenum, we're going to be eating nitrate-packed carcinogenic food because that's what nitrates are. There's still to publish, publish papers linking them to nitrates because we can't convert them to protein, which drives plant immunity, animal immunity, and human immunity, all for the sake of a cup full of sodium molybdate because we never tested for it. So you start to see the importance of these less, what we thought of as less significant things. And then we see... You know, we're using urea, the biggest, most widely used form of nitrogen. It usually enters the plant, goes through from beginning life as the amine form of nitrogen. Very quickly, the ureate enzyme converts it through to, um, uh, to, to the ammonium form of nitrogen. Then if there's moisture and, water, moisture and warmth, which is when you use urea, so there usually is, then nitrifying bacteria come and convert most of it very quickly to the nitrate form, and most of urea goes into the plant at night. Now, sitting in the leaf column with a lot of water with a dilution factor involved, which means you have more insect pressure often, but you don't want it sitting there as a nitrate. You want that converted to a protein, and that involves a second enzyme. And that enzyme is called the nitrate reductase enzyme that can, converts nitrates through to protein, which drives plant immunity and human immunity. And that enzyme, the nitrate reductase enzyme, is made from molybdenum that eight out of 10 people don't have in their soil. So you decide to see if you get back to root causes how you solve things, this is how you do it. You've got to take care of all of it. You've got to get all your ducks in a line and take care of those things. And that's what nutrition farming is, basically. All right, I'll stop things there for this session and pick up again next week when Graham and I will wrap up the interview by talking about all the unique benefits of worm castings in the soil and all the nutrition that they're able to cycle in the system. We also discuss how and why humic substance content in the soil is directly related to the profitability of a farm business, the new science and the technology that is transforming the regenerative agriculture space, and a whole lot more. Graham has such an incredible way of making all of these connections and explaining them in a linear and digestible way. I really hope that you'll join me in the last session in this series for that reason. Before you go, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to you and unlike other social media platforms which were created with complex algorithms used to mine your personal data in order to sell you more junk, this channel was created for the free exchange of ideas, stories, and mutual support among the growing regenerative pioneers. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be exploring questions like, what nutritional protocols do you follow to improve or optimize your health? Do you feel that these could be broadly applied to the general population or that health requires a highly personalized approach? Just check out the link in our Instagram account or on the homepage of the website at regenerativeskills.com to join and start the conversation today. 
Now that's our show for this week. Don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. <laughs>